Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. That's brilliant. Great, great response. Um, my name's Chris. I'm part of the team here at Lang Valley Vineyard. If you're a guest or visitor, we don't usually throw food in church. Um, I was really worried that if someone gets hit with a kilogram of sugar in the face, they'll not be bringing sugar next week. They'll be knocked out. So, um, but you're unbelievably welcome here at Lang Valley Vineyard. Um, we love that you're with us. If it's your first time uh, visiting with us, you're super, super welcome. If it's not your first time, you've been here for a long time, we also love that you're with us. Um, we're going to be jumping into our series that we've been in for the last few weeks uh, on the Beatitudes. Uh, usually as I begin to teach, I'll unpack uh, an applicable story where you will all probably laugh at my expense. I don't have one of those because we're already dug into time, so we're going to jump right into it. However, um, I can confirm that I will be shaving my head in a matter of weeks. Um, so, yeah. So, turns out... Uh, you guys are incredibly generous and love young people and also have a strange disdain for my hair. So that happens to be a great combination. And so that will be happening soon. Um, and so keep your eyes peeled, I guess. Well, I think you'll know it whenever it happens. Um, we're going to jump into our text. If you have a Bible, Matthew 5, verses 8. We're in the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verses 8. I'm going to read it for us in the NIV translation and then in the message. Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed or the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In the message, you're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind, your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. Moments ago, Stella did an amazing job at leading us through our family liturgy as we prayed for God to help us see how he sees. And one of the most important things when it comes to seeing how God sees is having his heart and the condition of our hearts. And so in these next few moments we have as a community, I want to do a bit of a deep dive into the heart. What is the heart? Let's look at how the Bible defines the heart and what occupies the heart and also what flows from it. So before I do, before I jump in, let me pray and we'll get stuck into it. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness. God, we thank you for your word that it is a light and a lamp onto our feet and onto our path. God, I pray as we open your word, you would make yourself known. God, I pray it wouldn't just be theory, but it would be an experienced reality for us. So come, Holy Spirit. Work among us. In your name. Amen. Amen. A few weeks ago, uh, myself and some of our Alpha team, uh, the team that have uh, been doing Alphas in schools, Alpha in short is an exploration of our life's biggest questions. We've been doing it in schools for fifth years. We were invited to come over to the Global Alpha Conference in uh, London. And so myself, Jenny, Amy, and Sarah headed over to London for it. And the, the Monday night, Students from Asprey, if you're familiar with Asprey, there was a revival that broke out in a university in America where people drove from all over and flew from all over the world to come into it. It was like 16 or 17 days of continuous worship ministry. They've seen some most incredible things happen. And the students uh, shared what had happened through that. And I had an incredible encounter with God that night. And uh, I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on. But since then, I've been thinking a lot about moves of God and as the Spirit pours out upon his people. And I've been looking at 
past moves of God and reading and revival history and all that kind of stuff. And I've came to a little bit of a realization as I've been reading through it. And that, that's that what we think is the most important thing theologically and strategically is usually not the most important thing for God. There seems to be a deeper principle in all of these great moves of God that is beyond just our theology and our thinking and our strategies. There's something that God seems to bless more than our cherished ideas and thinking, and that's our hearts. The biblical definition of the heart is pretty vast. There's over a thousand references in the Bible. I don't have time to obviously work through all those. But in summary of these, it denotes of a person's self, so the center of them, where their physical, emotional, and intellectual and moral activities flow from. Dallas Willard calls it the inner core of our being, where everything else flows out of. The heart is the key. It's the source to our river of, of life. It's the command center of how we talk and how we act, where everything else flows from. It's the agent governing our bodies. And what's interesting when we talk about the heart and look at the Bible's definition of the heart is that we live in a culture that doesn't really value the heart. We value romance and accomplishments and prestige, but the health of the heart often goes unattended to. In a very interesting altercation with a group of brothers, the Lord says this, the Lord does not look on the things that people look at. People look at the outward, experience, outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. Man looks on the outward experience, but God, he looks at the heart. Culture's value for the heart and God's value for the heart seem to be very different. And in today's context, when we look at the world around us, it's not hard to tell that something's not quite right, that, right, that there's something deeply wrong with the human heart. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? This is why the advice to just follow your heart Maybe some of you who are in a relationship uh, or, or married can relate to this. Maybe you're in uh, a conversation. You're one of those like kind of tense conversations and you're trying to understand and sympathize. You're trying to do all the practices that you learned on the marriage course. You're trying, to never use word, you're trying to never use the word never or always. You're trying to really see their point of view. You're trying to pause and reflect. You're trying to do all those sorts of things. And then suddenly out of nowhere in that tense conversation, your other half says something like, you never seen them dishwasher, which I know is very, I know that's very uh, specific. Um, <laughs> and as they say that, something in you just like a switch is triggered and you, in, you immediately respond. And almost as you're saying the words you wish, like you could like just pull them back as they're coming out, you, you realize something's going to be said and you're like, listen, I'm, I'm sorry, I actually didn't mean that. But your other half, they happen to know the Bible and they quote scripture and you said, well, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. <laughs> now, I've never experienced that, but, um, <laughs> but I do think it's a helpful hypothetical analogy, right? Where we can all probably relate to it. You see, what we often think is that under pressure in the heat of the moment, it distorts and bends our hearts where the worst comes out. But what's actually interesting, and the truth is, is that in the heat of the moment and under pressure, it, those moments don't bend our hearts or twist our hearts. Actually, all they do is expose it. 
They show what's truly inside of it. Eugene Peterson says this, it's your heart, not the dictionary that gives meanings to your words. It's your heart, not the dictionary that gives meanings to your words. Action and meaning both flow from our hearts. And what's interesting is when we look at the Bible, there's a famous quote in the Bible that talks about the fool says in their heart, there is no God. The fool says in their heart, not in their mind, in their heart. See, what's interesting is that if you want to think about God and you want to look at the evidence and all that kind of stuff, you can come to somewhat of a conclusion around an idea of the existence of God. Intelligent design points towards an intelligent creator. It's the way things have always been. I'm sure why is it not here? The origin of where we come from. But a fool says in their heart, there's no God. Why? Because it's in our hearts where we want to be our own God, where we want to decide that we know the better way. We know the right way. Our thoughts, we think, are better than what God has in store for us. And so that is why it says that the fool says in their heart, There is no God, not in their mind. The issue is the heart. We don't like to talk about it a lot in today's culture. It feels like nobody's really allowed to diagnose the fundamental problem of what's wrong with the world. And instead, often what we do is focus on these symptoms, these other things that happen as a result to what's happening in our hearts, when the heart is actually the issue. This is why life coaches are like the most in-demand job right now. I feel like every PT I know is now a life coach. I don't know how this happens. How Someone can explain that to me later on, but it feels like everyone wants to find someone to better their life. And the truth is that habits are incredibly helpful. Habits are formational. In fact, here at this community, we are for good and godly and healthy habits. But the fact is, is that habits cannot heal your heart. They cannot change your heart. They can be helpful. They can do amazing stuff. But at the core of it, habits in itself are redundant to change your heart. Dallas Willard says this, Our social and psychological sciences stand helpless before the terrible things done by human beings. But the warped nature of the human will, the reality of sin is something we're not allowed to admit in the serious discussion. We are like farmers who diligently plant crops but can't admit the existence of weeds and insects and we can only think to pour on more fertilizer. Similarly, the only solution we know to human problems today is education. It feels like everything that blows up in the media the solution is that we need to educate more. And listen, I'm for education. I feel like I spend more than half of my week in schools at the moment. I am for it. But the truth is, we look under the surface. Some of the most evil and dangerous people that we know on this earth are also the most educated. Education is good, but it and of itself cannot save our hearts. Human knowledge alone cannot change the human heart. Habits are amazing. But they can change our human hearts. And we've seen this throughout history. Jesus made it clear. Many thought that religion, right, do's and don'ts, a way to just marginalize people into actions and non-actions, rigorous do's and don'ts. And Jesus made it clear on his three years on earth that it was a disaster to go down the religious route. In fact, Jesus' harshest critique weren't for the so-called bad people or the people who had their lives in a mess. His harshest critique were for those who tried to change their inner hearts through outward actions. Those who tried to impose a way of living that would change their hearts instead of actually addressing the heart issue. They were called the Pharisees and Jesus called them a brood of vipers. He didn't hold back on them. In Matthew 15 verse eight, he says this, these people speaking to the Pharisees, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. The Pharisees presented everything right, but their hearts were far from them. 
You see, we often like to assign what's wrong with the world. We look at other nations and political groups. We look at people groups with agendas, and we say the problem is out there, particularly in church. We say this, right? The problem's out there. In here, we're fine, but the problem's out there. G.K. Chesterton, who was an incredible philosopher and an incredible uh, apologist for the Christian faith, was invited to a gathering in England of some of the best minds in the world, the leading professionals in the world. And their assignment was each of them were going to gather and they were going to leave and then come back. And as they left, they were going to write a dissertation, a thesis on what is wrong with the world. Because they thought if they could understand what was wrong with the world amongst the best minds, that they would be able to figure out how to go on from that. So everyone went back and handed in their thesis, handed in their pages upon pages of here's everything that's wrong with the world economically and all this kind of stuff. And G.K. Chesterton handed in one sheet of paper with two words saying on it, what's wrong with this world? I am. See, the bad news is that our hearts are sick. And the worst news is that us by ourselves can't fix them. And if left unattended to, can be fatal. But the good news, the good news is that God wants to give you a new heart. He wants to give you a new heart. You see, the gospel points us inward to repentance, not outward to critique. Inward to repentance, not outward to critique. And so what happens when we put our trust in Jesus is a heart transplant happens, open heart surgery, where our old heart is gone and a new heart is placed in us. And we're given instructions for how to steward that new heart. We're told to guard it. We're told to keep it soft, not harden it. And we're told to keep it undivided. And in this case, in Matthew, as blessing flows from a heart, we're told to keep it pure. See, it'd be foolish to get a heart transplant and to keep living the same way as before. We are to steward our new heart in a new way of living. So how do we do that? I don't have time this morning to do a deep dive into a theology of altars, but I'd love to. It'd be a great series we could do at some point. Maybe we'll do that in the future. But our hearts... Or altars, let me explain. In the Old Testament, altars were designed to offer sacrifice, to cleanse so that an individual or a group of people could come close into the presence of a holy God. Sacrifices were made for adoration also, not just sacrifice, but also in adoration of that God. The children of Israel, the people of God, uh, this played a key role in their story. They often were involved with altars and worship, but also Pagan gods also played a role in their story. See, the children of Israel found themselves drawn to other things, small gods, small G gods, not true gods, pagan gods that offered them some kind of blessing and happiness, but in reality never ever pulled through on it. One of the dominant challenges of the people of Israel is that their hearts went elsewhere. There was tension and division between pagan pagan altars and godly altars, between idolatry and true worship. And they weren't just external physical altars. What God addresses is the internal altar, their hearts. In Ezekiel 14, we read this, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. God says to the people of Israel, I'm looking at your heart and you've set up pagan altars. You seek me, but in your hearts you've set up altars where you sacrifice and praise things over me. Ezekiel chapters 8 to 10, two whole chapters, pretty much talk about how God's heart is grieved because his temple is turned into an altar to pagan gods. 
In the Old Testament, we understand that the temple is the place where the Spirit of God dwells. In the New Testament, we understand that we are temples. We are all little mini temples running about in which the Holy Spirit wants to inhabit. And if we are temples, that means we have altars. Our altars is our heart. And therefore, we don't have a choice about worship. We all worship. The reality is, what do we worship? My best definition of worship, which... James or Hannah will do a much better one, I'm sure. But is our heart's desire plus sacrifice and offering towards that desire. Our heart's desire plus sacrifice and offering towards that desire is worship. It's what it means to worship, but it's the most foundational way. We all worship. The choice isn't whether we worship or whether we don't worship. We all worship. The question is, and what you get to determine is what you worship. Many of us think we'd never worship the wrong thing, right? Never mind sacrifice for the wrong thing. One of the most barbaric examples of altar worship in the Old Testament is uh, onto a Canaanite pagan god where uh, parents would throw their newborn children into the lake of fire into Moab. And the reason why they did, did that is because they thought blessing was going to flow from that decision. And so they did it. And like me, if you read that, you think that is utterly incomprehensible today. How would people do such a thing? That is absolutely wild. And I don't want to get too close to the bone this morning, but I think this is important to realize, is when we look at the world around us right now, and I include myself in this statement, and we examine our own hearts, often we sacrifice our children, our spouses, we sacrifice genuine friendships at the altars of ambition to the pagan god of career, reputation, money, and perception. Perhaps in the context of worship, one is traditional and one is modern. We sacrifice the things we think we care about at what the world seems to value, thinking that that's what's going to bring us happiness. What is your heart worshipping? What is it costing you? And is it blessing you? We're told to keep idols out of our heart. 1 John 5 We're told, keep yourself from idols. We don't talk about idols much in church. We don't really see people around Lisbon like bowing down to totem poles and Bow Street or that kind of stuff. We don't, it's not really a common idea to talk and unpack this idea of idols. But the truth is, is that we're not talking about just physical idols. We're talking about the idols that exist in our hearts and in our culture. They are unseen. They are faceless. In Alpha, which we sit down with, uh, this year we sat down with somewhere between 400 and 500 students this year in Alpha, fifth years in, in schools. Opening conversation around what's the point in life? Is Jesus truly God and why that matters for life? And what's interesting is when we sit down with them, I'd say about 90% of them are unchurched and have no relationship with God. 90% of them have this idea that Jesus will restrict them from their freedom. But in actual fact, if we look back at what's happening in culture right now, what's happening in the West I think actually most of us are slaves to the idols that we have in our hearts. The career, the perception, the money, the ideas that we need to appear a certain way. That's what we're a slave to. We're not free from it. We're caught up in it. And it often costs us more than we want to pay and keeps us longer than we'd ever want to stay in that. But Jesus, we seem to think, is the one that restricts our freedom. In Ezekiel 14, here's what you read. 
This is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces and they go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture their hearts. I will do this to recapture their hearts of the people of Israel who have deserted me for their idols. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Repent, turn from your idols and renounce the detestable practices. This is a prophet speaking to the leadership of a nation. How do we know if something's an idol? Well, the truth is, is that idols aren't usually black and white. Sometimes they are, but a lot of the times they're gray, and I'll, I'll try to explain this. Here's a little indication that something may be an idol. If your life only has meaning because of something, and it's not God, that may be an idol. If you only have worth because of something, and it's not God, that may be an idol. If you desire power and influence over others that you can work and display, that might be an idol. If you have a longing to be loved and respected by others and that is the most important thing for you, that may be an idol. If you're seeking a certain quality of life or status, you want to have these holidays or these things or this appearance, that may be an idol. If you're desiring master over your life where you control every aspect of it, where you want to be the captain of your own soul, that may be an idol. If you need people to depend on you because it makes you feel like you have worth, that may be an idol. They are things that creep in They're things that tell us that we have to get this to be happy. And if we ever lose that, we'll be distraught. That may be an idol. Let me explain. This is the words of John Piper here. I don't quote often, but I think this is absolutely superb. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what, describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it's the piece of land, the yoke of oxen, and the wife. The greatest adversary of, of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when they replace an appetite for God, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Often idols are good things, but when they occupy the only place that God should occupy, it becomes a problem. The deadening effects of innocent delights. Apathetic faith is the great plan of the enemy, content numbing or spur us to sleep. And the scriptures tell us that all things that are lawful are not always profitable. The great, the very great scholar Kanye West says this, When you remove the fear and love of God, you create the fear and love of everything else. I miss the old Kanye. When you remove the fear and love of God, you create the fear and the love of everything else. I'm not sure it's ever been done before that someone's followed a John Piper quote with a Kanye West quote, but um, if that doesn't say youth pastor, I don't know what does. So there you go. This is what happens to our hearts when we remove the fear and the love of God is that we run to the fear and the love of everything else. We become insecure because we crave love in places that can't guarantee it or promise it. And we become fearful because we are scared of everything else that can happen or that can be stolen from us. This is why the Bible tells us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and these things will be added onto you because the enemy's plan is to kill, steal and destroy in which he can do with everything apart from Jesus. So when we fear and we seek and we love him, we live into undentable hope because he's the one that will never leave our side. He will guide us 
till the end. The truth is, is that the things that we are to keep from our heart and we're taught to keep from our heart, to stay pure in heart, I think if we're all honest, we may realize that some of them actually may already be there. David is a, is a man who's named a man after God's own heart. But in David's story, he has blood on his hands. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. When he came to counting his troops, he was full of pride. Yet we discover that Jesus comes through the line of David. Jesus right now, who sat at the right hand of the Father, looks down upon David and says, I'm proud to be associated with you. A man who has made more mistakes than we ever will. And yet God is associated with him. And the reason why is because when he acknowledged what was in his heart that was wrong, here's what he prays in Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. See, the first step is to have, to have hearts as altars before God as repentance. Heaven is drawn to a repentant heart. Blessing and kindness, with this idea of blessing flowing and us being able to see, it is drawn to a heart that is repentant, not perfect, repentant. We're told that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. You see, God wants your heart more than anything else. We read in the Bible that God is jealous for you. It's not because he's an insecure God. It's because he wants all of your heart. Not part of it, but all of your heart. He wants to be your first thing and your main thing and your only thing. That Christ would dwell in your hearts. And Paul's prayer that you would experience the fullness of God. See, the backstory of David is so interesting. There's a scene in David's life where he's just a shepherd. He's fending off lion and bears. He's not yet done anything massive for God. And Saul, who's the king of the time, who is not a man after God's own heart, has stepped down from leadership. And Samuel is appointed to appoint a new king. And so he shows up at the house of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David, in which he has many brothers. And this is a proud moment for Jesse, as Samuel arrives at his house to anoint a new king. And so Jesse lines up all of his sons. And I I have no doubt that in today's culture, these sons probably embodied everything that we admire in culture, right? The status symbols, the symbols of power and authority, whatever it looks like, success. They had everything going for them. They had the perfect CV. They were easily, if it's on paper, the one that would probably be the best king. And one by one, Samuel goes past and says, not him, not him, not him, not him. He turns to Jesse and says, if you knew other sons, he's like, well, I've won, but he's out the back. David, who wasn't even brought into the conversation to be anointed as a king, his dad didn't even see it in him that he left him outside the tent. He brings in this scrawny boy called David. Samuel takes one look at him and says, this is the one, anoint him. Man looks on the outside, but God, he looks in the heart. You see, God doesn't want to set fire to our giftings or talents or to the things that this world thinks are impressive. God wants to send fire onto the altars of our hearts to set us ablaze for him. And all of those other things will flow. The way we stay pure in heart, the way we receive blessing is to repent. Not to have a perfect heart, but to have repentant hearts. This is not about morality. This is not about having all of our ducks in a row and having everything neat and tidy. This is about desire in our hearts that we long for God. You see, the truth is that we can barely be a Jesus follower and look like a saint, right? 
we can barely be a Jesus follower and look like a saint. And the issue with that in the Bible, when we talk about lukewarmness or whatever else, the issue isn't that you're a hypocrite or you're living a double life or all that kind of stuff. That's all part of it, but that's not the issue. The issue is that when you live a life that is barely a Jesus follower and you just appear like a saint, you leave authority and blessing on the table and you settle for apple pie. That's the problem. You don't get to live into the fullness of everything that God has for you. To repent is to say, I want everything you died to give me. Not in part, but in full, all of it. The ultimate cry of revival is I want you in my heart. It starts here. This is where the fire starts. See, he wants to fill you with blessing. And God is looking for a people that aren't perfect, but have open hearts and are fully surrendered to him. God is asking, where are my people? I have a blessing. And if you're able to jump up as we come in the land. To go back full circle to the story of being an alpha, I, um, that Monday night, I uh, left the conference. We stood outside, myself, Jenny, Amy and Sarah, and I, I couldn't speak. I just couldn't find words. And uh, we went on down the road and uh, I met a friend who leads a church in, in Dublin and we began to try to have a, cat, a chat and what felt like 30 minutes, we just couldn't get words out. Like we had experienced something that we had never experienced before. And, um, and the story of that is that the young people from Asbury who were 19 began to explain what happened as revival broke out in their university, as people from all over came to give their lives to Jesus, where people were set free. There was a story they told of a famous worship leader, which even when I say that's such a strange concept, but a famous worship leader who got up on the stage on like day five to lead worship. And the students who were 19 stepped him off the stage and brought him in this side room and they were like, what's this about? And the 19 year old said, I'm just, I'm not sure your heart's right. And that worship leader was like, it's not, can you pray for me? They prayed for him and he had a phenomenal encounter with, with God that changed him. And we heard stories of people who came in addicted, full of addiction and set free. We've seen people who had... Uh, hurting bodies who left healed. We've seen people who had no hope leave with hope. We've seen people who showed up in that space that were skeptical that left fully believing in a God who was for them and that loved them. And they began to walk through these stories. And I was sitting there being like, man, we need to get these people to to, to know. Like people need to hear what they're saying. Like this is amazing, right? And then as they came into land, they were like, what we're gonna do as we come into land is we're we're gonna... um, we're going to pray that God would search our hearts. If there's anything in our hearts that aren't good, we're going to repent from them. I was like, okay. So we got on our knees and we prayed Psalm 139, which we will all pray in a minute. Search me, God. You know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I'm sitting there in the Royal Albert Hall and like the nosebleeds on my knees. And I remember a conversation I had the night before. We had just got in on a Sunday and uh, I'd sat down with a few uh, people in the church world who I guess are like kind of like they're, they're people, people know who they are. And they began to ask me about what God was doing through Alpha and Lisburn. And like one of my greatest desires is that God would do something here that would be heard of all over the world, that God would use us in this time. And my heart became like, became alive and we started talking about what God was doing through Alpha and all this kind of stuff and one of the global leaders of Alpha said we don't know of a story like this in the West that is comparable in terms of the amount of young people that are going through Alpha and I was like this is amazing 
We're on our way back to the hotel and uh, like wives are wonderful things, you know. And Jenny was like, um, I couldn't help but notice, like, do you think there's anything in this? Like, and it was, there was no judgment. And she's like, you just kept talking about like, when we were talking to them, like it was your story. Like you kept saying like my alpha story, my alpha story, my alpha story. And Jenny was like, do you think there's anything in that? And I was like, no, like I've just, I've just mixed my words up. There's nothing in that. Like, of course it's not about me. Like we've 20 volunteers and other staff and all that kind of stuff. Like it's fine. And as I was um, on my knees in the Royal Albert Hall and praying the prayer, search me, O God, you know my heart, test me and see if there's any anxious thoughts in you. I realized, and I, and I say this in humility to you as my church family, like pride had gotten into my heart in the smallest of ways. And it was beginning to grow and affect my actions and my speech in very subtle ways. And suddenly the Lord put something on my heart. He said, who are you trying to impress? Whose approval are you trying to seek? And I, I realized in that moment that I got it wrong. In a really small and a subtle way, I got it wrong. And I began to repent. And this is a really interesting thing we talk about repentance because often when we talk about repentance, we think the other side of that is judgment. When it's not, it is kindness and mercy. Let me explain to you why. God is a jealous God who longs for your heart fully. He won't settle for half of it or a divided heart. He wants it all, all of your heart. And so for the God of the universe to point out in the Royal Albert Hall and row I don't know what, that there's a little thing in your heart that's holding you back from me fully having it. We talk about miracles all the time. We're a community that are charismatic and contend for the miraculous. You know what's a miracle? That the God of the universe would point out the little things in your heart to say, I want all of it, not just 90% of it. That is miraculous. That is the pursuit of a loving God for all of your heart, not some of it, but all of your heart. And I was overcome with kindness. That's what I began the process as I left that moment. Search me, God, you know my heart. Test me, you know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, Jesus came, his mission was to reveal the heart of the Father to us as humanity. See, the Spirit's role, the Holy Spirit's role is to take what is an idea and to make it a reality in our hearts. It's not just theory, but something we can know and experience. Scholars throughout the years called it the kiss of God. I love that. It's intimate. It's messy. It's in your face. It's not standoffish or polished. It's right there with you. And the Spirit's job is to take biblical rumors and make them a reality. So you may have heard rumors that God is a loving God but it's the Spirit's job to make that a reality in your heart. You may have heard rumors that God is a forgiving God, but it is the Spirit's job to make that rumor a reality in your heart. You may have heard that He's the God that will never give up on you. He's the same God that ran after the prodigal son that ran away to all the mess and all the mistakes and ran out to him to embrace him. You may have heard rumors of that kind of God, but it is the Spirit's work that makes that rumor a reality in our hearts. He wants us to know it and to experience it. Here's what it says in Ezekiel 16. We've come out here quite a bit today and we're coming into land. I'm sorry, we've run a wee bit over. But here's what it says. I spread the corner of my garment over you and I cover your naked body. I give you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. This term of 
spread the garment over the naked body. What's the first thing that God says to Adam and Eve when they fall? He says, where are you? Now, you don't have to be around church a lot to know that God is all-knowing, okay? God knows where they're at geographically. He's not talking about where their feet are. He's talking about their hearts. Where are you? Where is it? What's it running after? And this phrase, covering the naked body, this in the Hebrew would have carried uh, like an immense picture. It was so intimate, this picture would almost be sexual. It was unbelievably like controversial to mention something like this in this context. And the reason why is Ezekiel's trying to make it clear that this God isn't a far off God who's disinterested. He's the one who says, who are you? And I will clothe you. I will cover you and I will make a covenant with you. I will make promises with you. He wants to be in those moments, face to face. So here's what we're going to do. In a moment, I'm going to ask you if you're able to get on your knees. If you're not able, don't worry, you can stay in your seat. But I'm going to ask you to get on your knees as we posture what it means to have a repentant heart. And as we do that, I'm going to pray the words of Psalm 139. I'll leave a gap. You pray it after. And I want you to invite God to point out whatever is in your heart, not to condemn you, but so that you would be overcome by a God who is so loving and gracious that he is jealous for your heart, not in part, but in full. Believing that what God wants to do in this region isn't for those who are perfect, but those who are pure. And how we have a pure heart as we say, God, we're sorry for the things we didn't even realize. And as we do this, you may realize things pop into your mind that you've never even seen before. Apple pie, things that don't seem bad, but they're not worthy of God in our life. They're not God. They're good, but they're not God. So if you're able, will you get to your knees? As we do this, I'll pray. Hannah's going to lead us shortly after without a piano. If you want to worship in voice, worship in voice. If you want to sit and ask God what he's doing, let him ask him what he's doing. Let God be God in this moment. And I pray you would experience the kiss of God. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, God. You know my heart.
Spirit, come. 